This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I'm delighted and excited to have Dr. Donnie Wilson. She's a naturopathic doctor, certified professional midwife. I didn't know that. And certified nutritional specialist. She graduated from Bastyr University in 2000, and she believes it is possible to be healthy even when we are stressed and we are in unprecedented times. She helps patients reverse challenging health conditions, including fatigue, anxiety, autoimmunity, fertility, insomnia, as well as HPV and abnormal pap smears. And we'll talk about that later. She is frequently called upon to discuss her approach in the media, as well as both public and professional events. She writes a blog you can find at drdonnie.com and her podcast, which I have been grateful to have been a part of is called How Humans Heal. So wonderful to connect with you this afternoon. Oh, likewise. It is such an honor to be here. Thank you, Cynthia. Absolutely. It was interesting. Well, we follow one another on Instagram and there was a post you had up one day and I was like, I have to get you on the podcast. There's so much that you're talking about that is so incredibly relevant, but how did you get from, you know, undergrad, the decision to go to naturopathic medicine route, as opposed to a more traditional allopathic medicine route? What was the impetus for making that shift? You know, I look back at that time in my life and I feel like I'm so glad that I trusted my gut, so to speak. I was doing a pre-med degree, completed a pre-med degree. So I was heading that direction in my life and I decided one day, you know, I'm so interested in nutrition. Maybe I'll take a nutrition course. And so I fell in love with nutrition and ended up also doing a degree in nutrition. So at the, you know, I'm in my senior year of college and I'm sitting and I'm applying to medical schools and I'm sitting there talking to my friends and I'm thinking, is there a medical school that includes nutrition? Because that's what I was studying and that's what I was passionate about. And a friend said, well, there's naturopathic medical school, which I had never heard of, even though I lived within hundred miles of two different naturopathic medical schools, (laughs) but I had never heard of it. And this is way back before Google. So I said, oh, that sounds interesting and uh, ended up getting in my car and driving to the naturopathic medical school that that friend told me about. And I walked in and I said, they said, how are you? What are you looking for? And I'm like, I'm looking for a medical school where I can also study nutrition or food as medicine. And they're like, well, you're in the right place. (laughs) So now looking back, It seems so obvious, but at the time I felt like I was discovering this perfect solution for what I was coming up with in my mind, which is that food and nutrients and healing is possible. And I wanted to be able to support people with that. And I was also in my pre-med studies was doing a lot of interning with OBGYNs. I was very interested in women's health. And one of the doctors that I interned with introduced me to midwives Mm -hmm. So that's what just opened up this whole world to me of not only food as medicine, but there's a different way to approach women's health that's more in line with what we call midwifery. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got there. And then once I found it, I'm like, I just knew this is what I was passionate about and what I wanted to do. Well, and I think, you know, being an advanced practice nurse myself, the midwives that I have had the opportunity to interact with over the years, I always say it's such a beautiful process when you can really intrinsically hone in on the way our bodies work and we're not as 
focused on the pharmaceutical piece, although obviously very important, you know, when you're acutely ill or there's surgeries that are needed, but for so many of the well women care that we are going through or dealing with, you know, I'm in a stage of life where I'm done having babies. And my nurse midwife always talks about the fact that she loves the fact that she can really just support women and support hormones in an entirely different way. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to make sure that we really touch on, and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is really talking about the role of stress. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned, when I was introing you, we're in unprecedented times. None of us have ever lived through a pandemic. Mm -hmm. You know, what is the impact of stress on our bodies? Obviously there is perceived stress, which, you know, for most of us, we've had more stress than the last year. How do you actually define stress and how do we mitigate the stress that we deal with acutely versus chronically, because there's no one listening that doesn't have stress in their daily lives. It's all how we react to it that has a large impact on uh, how we respond. Well, and actually my interest in stress goes back to when I was studying to be a midwife. I also studied to be a doula. And in that process, I decided to research how stress affects women in labor, specifically women who with a history of abuse going through labor, because there's a high percentage of women who have fear of labor, let alone stress in labor. And What we know from the studies then, and this was over 20 years ago when I was researching this, is that for labor to happen efficiently and effectively, we need a certain amount of stress. We need a certain amount of stress hormones, cortisol and adrenaline, in order for our bodies to get a baby out (laughs) in labor. And at the same time, if we have too much stress and not enough support in labor, it brings labor to a halt. And so really, if we look at labor as a normal, natural process that our bodies go through and can do, it also requires that we have a certain amount of stress hormones, but not too much Mm -hmm. and have enough support. And it's about how we are in that process that determines how well it proceeds and how the process goes. And so when I then graduated, I was growing up and I was in naturopathic medical school in Seattle in the Pacific Northwest. And when I graduated and finished my residency, I moved to the tri-state area, which happened to be right after 9-11, a very, very other, very stressful time. And so I decided, hey, what I learned from women in labor, can I apply that to other people who are going through stressful situations and help them through it by sort of helping them optimize their stress response? You know, knowing that we can't eliminate or avoid all stresses in our lives, stress is going to happen, but how do we support our bodies through stress so that we can maintain our health? And so I've been researching stress ever since and helping patients with it ever since. So I'm so glad you're asking about it. And that's what I've also written a lot about in my books and my blogs and so on. Because I think that as you were asking, what is, first of all, the definition of stress? Because we, a lot of times when we talk about it, we think of like psycho-emotional stresses, which is I definitely with this pandemic, that's been an example of, you know, just psycho-emotionally, how do we deal with this much change and this many unknowns and this much fear? How do we deal with it on that psycho-emotional level? But there's also stresses in the forms of, I would consider lack of sleep a stress, for example, or certain foods that can be a stress, say sugar, 
too much sugar, for example, we know it can be a stress on our immune system. So we can, and toxins we're exposed to, pesticides, we can look at research and we can look at our health and case studies and see that there's certain things we're exposed to on a physical level, even physical injury or too much exercise, we know can be a stress. So it becomes, again, all about what we call this homeostasis, which I know you talk about a lot. Like, how do we maintain that homeostatic place where we know we're going to have some stress? We might even purposely expose ourselves to small amounts of what we call stress. But as long as it's within this zone where our bodies can respond and recover effectively, that's okay. It's when things tip too far outside of that range, that's when we start to see the negative effects of stress on our bodies and our health. And I think it's really important. You know, I talk a lot lot about hormesis, hormetic stress, as you're talking about, and it's the right amount of stress in, in the proper amounts that, as you mentioned, it's kind of like Goldilocks, not too little, not too much, stresses our body, makes us adapt and actually makes us stronger. And whether or not that is high intensity interval training, intermittent fasting, certain specific types of foods, obviously avoiding the really inflammatory ones, you know, getting good quality sleep, cold exposure, any of us on the East coast that thought we were heading earlier into spring, we, we got a little bit of a surprise this morning with colder weather. So all of those things in the right amounts can make us stronger, but mm-hmm. what happens cumulatively over time, if we're not dealing with stress over time, and, you know, certainly if you were in the tri-state area post 9-11, you were in the thick of things. I'm sure you mm-hmm. saw a lot of sequelae, a lot of mm-hmm. complications related to what people experience. So what happens in our bodies when we've had too much stress for too long a period of time, especially in women, you know, I feel like it goes without saying, it's not to suggest that men aren't susceptible to stress, but women, our hormones are a little more delicate. They, you know, we fluctuate throughout our menstrual cycle. And so I kind of feel like women are in their own little special entity, as I know you write and blog about quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Well, and here's the thing is, so when we ask, you know, what happens when we're under stress all the time or too much outside of that zone of optimal, and the way I tend to break it down is to first think about our stress response, right? So we have our brain kind of has this constant, I call it like a stress radar system. You know, our brain is constantly picking up on stresses and anything that our brain perceives as a stress, it's going to send this stress signal. So, you know, from the amygdala, it's going to trigger the, first of all, what we call the autonomic nervous system, specifically the sympathetic nervous system is where we get adrenaline happening. So if you, most people, you think of adrenaline, you think of heart racing and sweating and mind racing in those, or if you've had a panic attack, that feeling of like, your body's going to try to help you survive the stress. And it does that from triggering the sympathetic nervous system. Now, the other part of the autonomic nervous system is called the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the opposite, the calming, you know, what we call rest and digest version of our nervous system. So you'll hear about the sympathetic and we can look at what we're really doing when we're helping our bodies manage stress is we're helping to maintain an optimum balance of yes, being able to respond with the sympathetic nervous system when necessary, but also being able to um, use our parasympathetic nervous system so that our body can do all of the activities it needs to do through at that time under rest and digest. And so there's that part of it, but there's also the other part of our stress response, which is the what we tend to call the HPA axis, which is when the hypothalamus and pituitary trigger the adrenal glands. Now the adrenal glands are above our kidneys and they make 
a bunch of different hormones, but they make cortisol and adrenaline, also adrenaline. So now we have this cortisol and adrenaline response. And I think people often are hearing about cortisol. And most times when people say, when they recognize that they're feeling stressed, often they assume that they have high cortisol. And certainly that's what happens when we have a, say the alarm goes off and you feel your body having a stress response in that moment, your body is going to try to put out more cortisol because the cortisol is going to help get some glucose to your blood and get your brain making decisions quickly and getting your muscles to respond. And, you know, so the cortisol is going to help you respond to stress. So the problem is when we're under a constant stress signal, now we have constant adrenaline and constant cortisol signaling. And see, normally there's a the feedback mechanism to our brain. So when the stress is done, it's going to turn off these stress responses. But if we're constantly triggering stress, then the off switch stops working. It's like our brain just keeps on triggering a stress response. And so sometimes you'll feel stressed, even if you're like sitting on your couch and you're like, I have no reason to be stressed. But it's because the nervous system does is so used to being stressed, it keeps triggering it. That's when things are getting outside of the zone. You're not getting your stress, you know, sort of the anti-stress. You're not getting some downtime. It's a constant stress response. And what I found, and this is through my research and working with thousands of patients for over 20 years, is that it's unique to each person what happens next. It's not necessarily the same thing for everyone. In fact, I've outlined five different what I call stress types, which are different versions of what happens to you when you're in a constant stress situation versus another person, whether it has to do with some of your genetics, like there's some genetic influence to this, how each person's adrenaline and cortisol responds under stress. There's also influence from earlier in your life, past exposures to stress, including exposures to stress in childhood and in the womb. And there's even studies relating to stress exposure in generations prior to you. So there's all these variables that influence how I'm going to respond to stress in this moment. And so that's what I get really interested in helping my patients with. Because if a person comes to me and says, I'm experiencing fatigue or anxiety or sleep issues, let's say, I'm very interested in what is their stress response? Where did it get stuck? What does their stress mode look like? Are they stuck with high cortisol? Are they stuck with high adrenaline or both? Are they, is their cortisol high, but their adrenaline's low? Like what's happening there where there's dysregulation in the sympathetic and the HPA axis? Because once I know where, where the dysregulation or imbalance is, then I can help that person rebalance it. And I think that's an important thing for people to really hear and understand is that it's possible to help our body and our brain recover from stress. It's not that it's a done deal stuck that way. It's just stuck that way for now. And once we identify it, then we can help our bodies recover. Well, I love that you had to say, and really focusing in on bio-individuality, that each one of us, if you took 10 women of a certain age and you put everyone together, there may be more people who can handle more stress or less stress. And it could be things that are beyond our control. You know, the genetics aspect, whether or not, you know, genes get turned on or off or SNPs, you know, these mm-hmm. uh, little snips has so much to do with, you know, our interaction with our environment. You know, I was reading a book by David Sinclair that I'm sure you have already read. And Mm -hmm. 
he was saying that, you know, 80% of the way we age has to do with how we live our lives, that it's not just written in stone per se, that, you know, a baby is birthed and things are going to, you know, work out a particular way because that's just the way things are. It's 80% how we live our lives is how we age. And I would imagine that the stress response is very aligned with that. Now I want to just backtrack and I find, you know, the autonomic nervous system really, really fascinating. And so there's the, I'm being chased by a saber tooth tiger, which is a sympathetic response. There's the rest and repose, which is ideally the side of your autonomic nervous system. You want to be in, if you're trying to digest food, relax, defecate, et cetera. And what I find really interesting, and I think particularly for women that are probably North of 35 or 40, is that, you know, it's really critically important as we get older that we are really managing and mitigating our stress because Mm -hmm. as one example, as I'm in the midst of writing my book, you know, we have like, I think it's four times the amount of cortisol receptors in our bellies. So when people say to me, like, why am I gaining all this, you know, abdominal fat? And I'm like, oh, it's because you're stressed, but it's because you have more receptors in your abdominal area. And I think when people just start to realize like that's a physical manifestation of something that's going on internally, like your body doesn't Mm -hmm. differentiate between, you know, being chased by a rabid animal as opposed to being frustrated because let's insert anything that's happened over the past year. You can't go to a party, you know, you're not able to get on a plane and go wherever you want to. You have to wear a mask everywhere you go. Your body doesn't differentiate. And so it's really, really important to understand how important it is to do everything you can to find balance. I know balance can be elusive, but balancing that sympathetic, you know, most of us are sympathetic dominant because we're go, 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 go all the time with that rest and repose side of our bodies. And so what are some of the ways that you like to suggest to your patients for how to get out of that fight or flight, you know, that sympathetic dominant mode, because I'm sure anyone that's listening, as I keep alluding to, we've had an unprecedented last year, things probably haven't gone the way that we wanted them to ideally. So what are some of the things that that are, you know, best practices for you with your patients? Oh, it's such a good question. And Again, I love, you know, I really believe that the more you people understand this whole stress response and the point you made about epigenetics, which Mm -hmm. is that we have this ability to even reset our genetic expression based on helping our bodies. What usually the terminology I'll say is recover from stress or rebalance, re-optimize our stress response. And so you can, knowing that it can motivate you to go, okay, what do I need to do here? to help my body rebalance and my stress response. And interesting, because you're mentioning like some of the ways that the pandemic is stressful. It's so interesting to me speaking with patients now that it's, you know, been this long into it, that there's actually some people who found during the pandemic things that helped them that they would have probably chosen before, right? Like prior to a year ago, people were probably like, yeah, I wish someone would tell me to stay home for a week. (laughs) I wish someone would tell me that I can't go to a party because sometimes there's a lot of obligation related to that, right? Like, you know, a lot of our stress was from commuting and going to events that we didn't really want to go to. So it's interesting to me to also see how that has shifted, but it has also Given this opportunity, we're more at home and we get to create our own schedule now. We can go what, and I encourage people to 
create a self-care schedule. So when you're now that you're maybe looking at your life again and saying, hey, how can I create a self-care schedule and structure? That's going to make a huge difference on your sympathetic parasympathetic balance and your HPA axis. And what I mean by self-care schedule would be, what are you doing from the minute you wake up in the morning? Instead of going straight to looking at your phone and checking messages, what if you start off with a meditation or journaling or gratitude session? What if you then get to, you know, spend some time like, taking care of yourself and whatever that looks like in your schedule. Maybe that means for some people, that's when they're going to do their cold exposure, or that's when they're going to do set their schedule for the day. But now you have a different frame where you're looking at your day from a perspective of what's going to be the best way of managing my health. Maybe I want to change my eating window. Maybe I want to make sure I have the right foods available for me. Do I need to go shopping? What am I going to do to set myself up in the evening so that I can get my best sleep? And so by the time you're really taking care of your, when I talk about care, I think of clean eating, you know, setting up your diet, adequate sleep, stress recovery techniques, like some that I mentioned, like meditation and so on, we can talk about more and E for exercise. So when you can set up your daily routine to uh, make space for those things, it's going to really help you to manage and master your stress in the long term. All right, we'll be right back. Consuming Element on a daily basis is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health. And we know that by consuming proper amounts of electrolytes, it can contribute to quality sleep, which is critical to all of my perimenopause and menopausal patients and clients. We know that magnesium increases a neurotransmitter called GABA that is known for producing calming effects. And consuming adequate levels of sodium can help you sleep through the night because low sodium levels increase cortisol and adrenaline. Additionally, if you are intermittent fasting, it's important to understand that when you fast, two things can dehydrate you. Number one, if your insulin levels remain low, it can signal to our kidneys to excrete more sodium or salt, a process called naturesis. And as glycogen or stored glucose is broken down, the water left over from the glycogen breakdown is urinated out. So if you want to take care of your health in one of my favorite ways, you can consume Element electrolytes. My favorite flavors are grapefruit and citrus, but there are many others to choose from. And if you go to drinkelement.com slash Cynthia, you can get a free sample pack to try them out on your own. Again, it's drinklmnt.com slash Cynthia for your free sample pack where you can try all of their flavors. Weight gain is one of many symptoms that our hormones are in decline, especially as we navigate perimenopause into menopause. Dr. Anna, who is a great friend of mine, is an OBGYN who's treated thousands of women just like you and I who experience increasing dryness and even pain in the bedroom as they get older. Jolva is the solution Dr. Anna formulated for her own clients, and it has since been loved by over 100,000 women. It's a feminine cream with DHEA that helps the body regenerate moisture from the inside out. 92.8% of Jolva users experienced a significant improvement in the first four to eight weeks. Get 10% off your first purchase of Jolva by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. That's dranna.com Cynthia and get 10% off your first purchase. 
No, I think that it's really critically important. And I always say, I prefer to look at the past year as what are the gifts that we learned? And as someone that has, you know, up until five years ago was in the hospital rounding early and clinic rounding early, the very first business coach I had when I transitioned to being an entrepreneur used to say to me, Cynthia, put nothing on your schedule before 11 Mm a.m. Now coming from a traditional allopathic medicine background, I was used to being in the hospital early, 637, 738 a.m. And the first year or two I was an entrepreneur, I still was packing my schedule like that. And it finally dawned on me, you know, finally I had to four years to being an entrepreneur to be that long to figure this out. I was like, oh, this is so I can be my best for my clients, for my patients, for all my business relationships. So I don't put anything on my schedule unless I have to before 11 a.m. And I've come to find out that has made my life so much better. Like I'm not yelling at my kids. I'm not yelling at my husband or the dogs. I can, you know, get up, exercise, take care of myself, meditate. You know, maybe I break my fast right before 11 a.m. and I have the opportunity to eat. And I encourage other people to, you know, if you're listening, what are things you can do in your day so that you don't feel like you're, you know, full speed ahead from the moment you get out of bed? Like one of the things that I've come to find out, you know, social media is a blessing and a curse, a blessing because it allows you to be connected with your community and, you know, hopefully a lot of really interesting individuals with similar backgrounds or people maybe that you get to learn from, but also detrimental because we feel this sense of obligation to always be connected. And and so I made a very purposeful decision this year that I was going to cut my social media time in half. And I've come to find out I'm far more productive when I'm not focused on getting up in the morning and looking at Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and whatever else, you know, mm-hmm. I've gotten notifications for. And so I love that you kind of are encouraging people to really invest in themselves mm-hmm. because investing with you into yourself first is really important. Now, I know there are probably people listening who have younger children. I have teenagers. I know that I believe your children are a little bit closer in age to mine, but I know when you're caught up in the yumminess of having infants and toddlers and they're very dependent on you, and then you get the ability in the evenings, maybe the evening timeframe is when you can kind of reinvest in yourself, read a book, et cetera, but making sure you're carving out time every day to, you know, get yourself out of that fight or flight mode. I feel like meditation was something that took quite a bit of effort to get interested in. I kept saying, oh, I I can't like quiet my mind. And I found a device that I wear when I meditate and it has been life altering. And I tell people, everyone has time for three minutes to meditate. And I started with three minutes every day for a month and then went to five and then went to 10 minutes. Now I have my husband meditating too. I'm sure he probably would be stunned if he knew I shared that, but I really think it puts us in the best frame of mind to get out of that fight or flight response. Oh, it's so true. And there's a lot of research. I mean, meditation itself has so many studies showing the benefits. And so just know that it's even though it's essentially you're doing nothing, you know, you're basically saying, okay, I'm going to do nothing for three minutes or 10 minutes or an hour. And at first, it feels really wrong, because we're so used to this message that we're supposed to be super efficient, we're supposed to get something done every minute. And so it feels like, what do you mean, I'm supposed to do nothing? I don't know how to do that. And so it's a really good, I love how you're saying to start with a small amount of time, because at first three minutes is going to feel like a long time (laughs) for just sitting and being in the nothingness. 
And yet there's the studies we can't argue with are so showing us that allowing ourselves that nothing this time actually helps our brains recover and heal from all that stress, what we call neuroplasticity, which is developing new neural pathways. It's also helping to correct this cortisol and adrenaline that we talked about getting out of balance. And it's interesting to me, see, because I'm looking at both high and low cortisol and adrenaline. So I'm always looking for studies that can show me that it's good for people who have high cortisol and people who have low cortisol. It's going to bring it to optimal. Mm -hmm. It's so amazing how our bodies know where that optimal middle range is. And when we choose activities like meditation that can actually help our bodies, give our bodies the space to find that middle perfect zone again, so whether you have high cortisol, or low cortisol, or high adrenaline or low adrenaline, it's going to help you come back to optimal. And it's by practicing it on a regular basis that you give your body that chance to keep coming back to center. So you can think of it that way, just letting yourself recenter. And actually what we end up seeing is that you end up becoming more productive because, you know, we kind of falsely think that we have to keep, you know, we can work all day and we, we end up not taking our care of ourselves that whole time or we can focus, focus, focus. But actually, if you take breaks, even little one, three minute breaks to take a couple deep breaths, it actually helps us to become more productive when we go back to focusing and working. And so just knowing that, you know, I feel like the more we can understand our human physiology and understand the need for stress recovery and find ways to integrate it, because it's not the same for everyone. You want to really just take it on with curiosity and play with it like you did, you know, like, let me just try it out a little bit and see what works best for one person is going to be different for another person. Maybe another person even with meditation, there's sitting meditation, there's laying down meditation, there's walking meditation, there's standing meditation. So you don't have to be in any particular posture. There's, you can really individualize even meditation. Inevitably, someone will ask what device it is that I wear when I meditate. It's called Muse, M-U-S-E. I have no affiliation with them. I just really believe in the product and recommend it to my clients when they tell me they can't get into the right frame of mind. And I said, you know, this will actually tell you if you are in the right frame of mind while you're meditating and can be a really powerful way. But I love that you're suggesting that, you know, you don't have to just sit cross-legged in a quiet room, that there's so many different ways that you can practice this. Now, do you have specific adaptogenic herbs or supplements that you like to use with your patients, whether their stress response is like overactive or underactive? And I know that this is a question I get asked quite a bit and I, I definitely have adaptogens. In fact, I was making, I'm always experimenting with different protein powders because people always ask me lots of questions about nutrition. Mm -hmm. And so I just purchased a new ashwagandha powder, which is one of the adaptogens that can be both stimulating and calming depending on how you're using it. And so I use some in a shake this morning, just to experiment with it because ashwagandha powder can actually be a little bit bitter. I think people find that surprising. Like, mm -hmm. so start small, don't, you know, put a tablespoon in a shake. You might not be able to get through it, but mm -hmm. what are some of your favorites to use? Well, and what I like to do, first of all, is I've developed a assessment, by the way, to help understand your stress type. So to be able to understand, do you have a high or low cortisol, high or low adrenaline? And then whenever possible, I encourage you to actually measure your levels because these levels can be tested in urine, cortisol, you can measure in urine or saliva mm -hmm. at different times a day, right? Because you might have 
too high cortisol in the morning and too low at a different time of day. So you want to measure morning, midday, evening, and bedtime. So you're dosing your adaptogen, the right adaptogen at the right time of day. And same with the adrenaline. You want to see, is it too low? Is it too high? Because we're going to use different treatments if it's too high versus if it's too low. So first of all, I like to first know what is your stress type? What is your body doing under stress? So that we can really more specify the treatments. And this is what I write about in my newest book too, by the way. So I'm so excited about it. And so from there, we can look at the studies and we can go, okay, like ashwagandha that you mentioned, ashwagandha is considered adaptogen. Now, for those who may not be familiar, adaptogen is a term that's used to basically say any substance that helps us kind of bring, come back to this homeostatic middle balance point. The thing is that a lot of studies on ashwagandha show it's really good at decreasing cortisol when it's too high. So I'm much more likely to recommend ashwagandha to someone who has cortisol that's too high and then for them to take it at the time of day when their cortisol is too high. Um, So if your cortisol is too high at night, it may not help much to take it in the morning. You want to take the ashwagandha then in the evening when you want that effect to happen. And this is the, I just like to clarify that because some people feel like, well, is it just like a temporary quick fix or something? But I like to clarify that, yes, while these adaptogenic herbs and different things we can do can help bring our cortisol and adrenaline back to more of an optimal level, my goal is always to fully help your body recover from stress. So hopefully your body is able to maintain those healthier levels over time. So I'm usually using adaptogenic approaches as a part of a stress recovery program. And then once you get back to optimal levels, we're then we're doing more of a maintenance plan to maintain that over time, even though you're going to be continually exposed to stress, we want to, then you'll know, oh, if I had a really stressful day, and I'm really wired at night, I probably need my ashwagandha to turn down my cortisol. But other days, you might not need it. So that's the goal is to get to that point where you're really able to, you know, respond to your body's needs in the moment. Um, But at first, there is a usually a stress recovery process, we're using these herbs and nutrients to get the body back to balance. Another example would be with adrenaline, you know, if adrenaline's too high, it has to go through different metabolic processes, adrenaline to get out of our body. So when we, and again, there's genetics that influence this, right? Like COMT, I'm thinking of, is the enzyme and gene that influences that enzyme and pathway to metabolize adrenaline or norepinephrine and epinephrine. And we know that magnesium is a nutrient that facilitates that process. So if I see that on a urine testing, a person has high adrenaline levels, or even if they have symptoms of high adrenaline levels, then using magnesium can help the body move that magnesium out and it's going to help them feel better. So again, we can, by understanding physiology and understanding the person's body's response to stress, we can give specific approaches to help. Well, one of the things that I want to make sure we touch on, because you've alluded to it, is the whole circadian rhythm, because when mm-hmm. you're talking about, you know, monitoring the cortisol levels in the morning, you know, midday, afternoon and evening, that's really what we're looking for. And so when that circadian rhythm, which is the secretion of cortisol, when that gets dysregulated, and it could be just be just I'm super stressed, maybe I'm getting married, or I'm getting mm-hmm. ready to have a baby. And it's like could be good beneficial stress, yes. but you can get a dysregulation in that pattern, but I'd love for you to touch on that. And one of the things that I want to make sure I mention, we're talking about things that are very important for the body, 
especially when we're trying to mitigate stress, deal with stress, is even connecting with nature. Like as easy as 10 or 15 minutes outside in the morning can be very beneficial for that circadian rhythm. You know, we have our retinas will actually, you know, kind of take in that information. It's very light and bright. I'm going to suppress melatonin, which is one of our sleep hormones. And I'm going to tell the body, okay, let's get this cortisol going because it's the start of our day. We need plenty of energy. Let's get moving. Absolutely. And this is like I was mentioning care, you know, the clean eating, adequate sleep, recovering from stress and exercise. And in the recovering from stress category, there's so many things we mentioned meditation, but spending time in nature is huge. And I love how you're mentioning that it's even what time of day we spend in nature, like being able to, I guess, recognize that we're human beings on earth, you know, and part of the reason that we are able to survive and live on earth is because of our the whole way that the earth is orbiting the sun and the moon is orbiting the earth and we by recognizing that and going oh wait a minute as a human being if i give my body these purposely give my body the signals of light in the morning it's going to signal a whole cascade of hormones that we want that are going to give us energy and help our bodies function. And then at night, we want to signal darkness so we can turn on the melatonin that you're mentioning. And so to just recognize that our bodies are so responsive to light exposure, to different sounds, you know, and noise exposure, these are all potential actually stress signals if we get thrown off, right? That's why even when we have daylight savings time or change time zones, it throws you off, right? You can feel right away. Like we know from daylight saving times that people have more accidents, they have change in energy, mood. And it's because that even an hour shift in light exposure affects us. And so we realize, oh my gosh, I'm not a robot. I'm not a machine. I'm a human being that's very responsive to my environment. And if I'm intentional about my exposures in my environment, that's going to influence my health. I also usually like to emphasize that how much cortisol affects all of our different body systems. The four main systems that we read about in the research is the digestion is definitely affected by cortisol. Also, all the hormones, you alluded to that before too, how cortisol affects digestion and hormones. And also cortisol affects our nervous system. So all of our neurotransmitters, serotonin and dopamine and GABA and so on. And also cortisol affects our immune system. So when you think about it, if we get thrown off of our circadian rhythm, either accidentally or on purpose, <laughs> we're potentially affecting our digestion, our immune system, our hormones, and our nervous system. And some people might notice it in one area more than another. Like some people might be like, oh, I, my heartburn is worse, or I feel bloated, or another person, it might be more in their immune system. Maybe when they're stressed, they are more likely to catch a cold or get some other infection or autoimmunity flaring up. You know, so it, it shows up. Some people have all four systems mm-hmm. activating on there. There's like all basically, I look at it, those are signals from your body telling you that it's too stressed, it's out of balance, and it starts sending signals or symptoms through these different systems in our bodies. And so that also means that as we get back into our self-care routine with our circadian rhythm and taking good care of ourselves and giving our bodies what they need, then these systems sync back up again. 
Now the digestion improves, the immune system, the nervous system, the hormones, they can come back in line again. And so it, it means that we have a lot of control actually based on our choices. Sometimes that feels overwhelming because it's like, oh my gosh, where do I start? But that's where, you know, I think just having that awareness and then you can start down this path. You can start any day down this path of recognizing and paying more attention to what your body's signals are and what your body needs and really then recalibrating and um, along the way. I think that's really important, you know, talking about the downward effects of what happens when there's too much cortisol over a period of time. And I also like to talk to patients about the influence of blood sugar and how, mm -hmm. you know, cortisol will you know, make it much harder for you to maintain your blood sugar properly. Mm -hmm. It will make it harder for you to, you know, ensure that your insulin is working properly. And so, you know, you talk about the cortisol belly. We talk about a lot of these other, you know, side effects when cortisol is not properly regulated. Now, do you like to use the Dutch, the dried urine and saliva mm -hmm. test in your practice? Mm -hmm. I do use the dried urine and saliva or dried urine test for cortisol levels, but also for estrogen, progesterone. So we can really see how those hormones are being affected. I also will sometimes check cortisol levels in saliva again, multiple times a day, because you can do a blood test for cortisol. Then it's only giving you that one moment in time that you had your blood drawn, um, which also might've been a stressful moment. <laughs> so it's better to really get as much information as we can. And then I measure epinephrine and norepinephrine or adrenaline in the urine, as well as the other neurotransmitters, serotonin and dopamine and GABA, we can measure in urine. So we can really learn a lot about what these different signals are in your body. And what I always look at it, because sometimes people feel afraid, like, oh my gosh, what am I going to find? But on the other hand, a lot of times you're not feeling well, and you just want to understand what's out of balance. Because once we see what's out of balance, then we can help rebalance it. You know, we can help. You mentioned insulin as a hormone that gets thrown off by cortisol. Of course, again, it's because the cortisol is trying to help us with stress. So it's trying to get sugar to our bloodstream. But if that's happening constantly, or especially, as you mentioned, with women who are perimenopausal, insulin function decreases. So that means if you combine lower insulin function and higher cortisol, you're definitely going to end up with higher blood sugar levels, which then what happens is when there's a lot of glucose in the blood and it can't get into our cells, the liver, the way I think about it is the liver then has to decide. And the liver has only a few options. The liver can turn it into cortisol or triglycerides, right? So it can raise your cholesterol levels or the liver can put it in fatty storage in the liver, what we call fatty liver, or the liver can basically turn it into fat storage around your waist. And you really don't want any of those three. You don't want your waist growing. You don't want your cholesterol going up and you don't want your liver having fatty storage either. And so it becomes this impetus to say, what do I have to do to manage my cortisol and optimize my insulin? So your liver never has to deal with too much glucose. It's so very important, especially as we see more and more metabolic diseases here in the United States and abroad. And and I'm sure this past year, I'll just keep saying it, this past year, you know, with unprecedented times, I think a lot of people, you know, jokingly, patients have called it the COVID-19, but I always remind them, I'm like, we can always work on taking this back off. We're not going to embrace limiting beliefs. This is the way things are going to be forever. But one of the things I want to touch on, I want to pivot just a little bit. When I was asking my social media following what kinds of questions they had for you, and they know that you've got this 
focus in HPV education and research, there was a lot of discussion about HPV. I think many of us think of it as a younger person's issue. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk about how this is not just a virus that impacts young people. It also impacts middle-aged people as well. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of the differences of virility, I don't know if it's any more virulent with age. You know, you mentioned the cortisol, the stress response, the impact on the immune system. I'm presuming you can probably reactivate viruses that have been dormant in the body and HPV is probably no different. Well, I'm definitely seeing after this extremely stressful time with the pandemic that we're seeing more and more positive HPV results coming back. So I do think we're seeing that stress turning on HPV. And as you mentioned, there's other viruses that can be activated also under stress like Epstein-Barr virus and even herpes virus. So if people are noticing, oh my gosh, why all of a sudden am I having these other viral symptoms or situations coming up, it's because the stress is affecting your immune system and leaving you vulnerable. And that's the way that I really have found it's best to think about HPV. You know, it's, I've been helping women with HPV for over 20 years. And so I've seen a lot of cases and I've learned from them. They've really inspired me, these women, because they've come to me asking for help saying, hey, I have this positive HPV, maybe they also are having abnormal pap smears. And they're saying, listen, it's not okay with me to just watch and wait, because that's a lot of times if you get a positive HPV on a pap smear, oftentimes doctors will say, well, just come back in a year Mm -hmm. and see if anything abnormal has occurred. But more women now are saying, I'm not okay with just waiting to see if it causes abnormal cells or cancer. I want to do something about it. And I'm so happy that women are thinking that way and starting to ask those questions and say, hey, what can I do to help fend off this virus and prevent it from causing? Because what we know is that HPV is associated with cancers. Most often we hear about cervical cancer, so cancer on the cervix, but it can also cause cancer in the vaginal tissue. It can also cause cancer for men anal cancer, oral cancer, and penile cancer. So it's, this is a virus that can lead to abnormal cells. And it then makes us have to sit here and think, well, what can I do to prevent that from happening to me, right? That's what women are saying to me when they call me, what can I do to prevent that virus from being able to cause cancer in my body. And there's so much we can do. There really is. And my patients have proven it over and over. And so now I'm, yes, very motivated to share more about it. I mean, even to know that we say HPV as if it's one virus, but there's actually over a hundred different types of HPV. Some of them are known to cause genital warts. And so some people know of the virus that way, but that's the thing is most times it doesn't cause genital warts. So that's most times it actually doesn't cause any symptoms. So people don't realize they even have the virus, including men have no idea that they have the virus because most times they don't have any symptoms. And the only way we end up knowing that it exists is when it's tested with a pap smear. You see, the pap smear is really just looking for the types of cells on the cervix to see if there's any abnormality in the cells. Alongside the pap smear, the doctor can order an HPV test. For many years, 
that wasn't even done all the time. You would get a pap and you weren't necessarily tested for HPV, right? But more recently, it's the HPV test is being done. The CDC even recommends it for anyone over age 30. So, and around the world, I'm hearing from women who are now being tested for HPV and finding out they have it. So now they have this piece of information and they're like, what do I do about this now? Because here's the thing is that 50% of people who are diagnosed with HPV, who find it on their pap smear, 50% of them, it will go away and go to negative within eight months. So if 50% of people, it goes to negative in eight months and 90% of people, it goes to negative within two years without doing anything. So it's a very common virus too, by the way, most all of us are going to be exposed to HPV at some point in our lives. So it's not a, these are some of the myths, right? We would think, oh, this is a rare virus and, oh, it's only from being promiscuous or something. It's, you know, and a lot of women call me feeling very ashamed and afraid and not having enough information because it's just these misconceptions about it. So I really like to encourage people to know that it's very common HPV and it's only tested in women. It's not tested in men. And 90% of the time, your body will clear it on its own. So you really want to be in the 90%, right? You want to be in the 90% where it doesn't cause an issue and it leaves you alone. The issue is the 10% of people where it doesn't leave you alone. It does end up causing abnormal cells. And that's where you know women are wanting to stay out of that 10% or once it does cause abnormal cells, what can we do to help the body get rid of those abnormal cells and get the cervix back to healthy? All right, we'll be right back. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bioptimizers. Masszymes is a full spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product. With five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, 
exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one, interpreting your data, and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I have used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code E. WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. It's such helpful information because I know that when I trained in the university, that was when the HPV vaccines were being developed. And actually my GYN, Connie Trimble, who, you know, is this revered, respective gynecologist, she kept saying, you know, we're making this vaccine so that, you know, women don't die of cervical cancer. And obviously we reduce the transmission of this virus between same-sex partners, opposite gender partners, et cetera. And so what's been your experience when you're looking at, you know, my understanding is that teenagers or older children, you know, Preteens are the ones that are usually being targeted for the vaccine so that they're getting it before they become sexually active. Do you have any data on the efficacy of the vaccine or some of the concerns that go along with it? Well, one thing I always like to really clarify is that the vaccine, the Gardasil vaccine, first of all, it was covering four of the types of HPV. And now it covers nine. So that's why they call it Gardasil 9 is because it's covering nine of the different types. Now, these are the types that tend to cause genital warts and are the higher risk for abnormal cells on and cancer development. But it's important to recognize that there's, you know, hundreds of types of HPV. So it doesn't cover all of them. So just knowing that going in, because I hear from a lot of women who had the vaccine and still got HPV of a different type or even sometimes one of the types that's covered by the vaccine. So it's just a, it's important to know that it's a not a hundred percent. It doesn't, it still means you still need to get a pap smear. Mm -hmm. You still need to be monitoring for HPV because it's not a complete solution, right? Like we'd like to be able to just have a vaccine and then cross it off our list forever, but it's not the case. So it's important to know that. It's also important to know that there are some reported side effects to the vaccine. So I always encourage people to really learn 
and research and read about especially this particular vaccine um, so that you're aware of the risks of the vaccine. And on the other side, as we've been talking about the risks of HPV, and then you have to decide, okay, do I say if you're, and it's tough when you're a parent having to choose for your child, right? It's always one of the hardest decisions as a parent to make, because here we are making a choice that could influence our child's health for the rest of their life. So you want to just, I would say, sit down and look at both sides. What are the risks with the virus exposure, which again, most all of us are going to be exposed to this virus at some point in our lives versus the risks of the vaccine. And then deciding what you want to do and what you want to choose for your, you know, whether you have a daughter or a son, because it is suggested for both men and women, for girls and boys. And that's, again, because, I mean, men can have HPV virus and not know it. And they can also get cancer from the virus at some point in their life. And then they're in a situation of thinking, oh my gosh, I wish I would have known I had this virus. I would have done something about it. So I hope that helps answer vaccine question. No, it definitely does. And some of the other questions I received about the vaccine in particular were, if I've you know recently been divorced, was monogamous for 20 plus years, is there value as a middle-aged person getting the vaccine? And I didn't see any specific research in that area, but I figured you would probably know. Well, and this is the thing, it's a great question because the thing about HPV is that the virus can activate at any point, right? So even if you had been exposed to HPV, maybe you were exposed to HPV 20 years ago, but you never knew it because it wasn't showing on a test or maybe you weren't tested. So, but 20 years later, it could activate. You mentioned middle-aged women. A lot of times I speak to middle-aged women say, you know, 55 or 60 years old, and they just now got a positive HPV test. And they're thinking, well, was this a recent exposure? You know, were they in a new relationship or was there, did there, did somehow it come from their partner? And women can be very distraught trying to figure out how did I get exposed to this virus at this time in my life? But what's important to remember is that that virus might've been in your body for 20 years And it's only the stress you've been under recently that turned it on, that activated it. And so even if at that point in your life, you decide to have a vaccine, you still don't know whether that virus might already be in your system. And so you might have the vaccine, you might choose to do it just in case, but you still might have HPV activate. And so again, it's not a fail safe solution. And so I encourage you to just think it through for yourself. I think a lot of it is, see, from my perspective, I've been helping women who already got the virus and maybe had an abnormal pap smear. And I've been helping them for over 20 years to reverse the abnormal pap and get the HPV to negative. By the way, we've been able to actually get their follow-up pap smears to show a negative HPV and that maintains over time. So I'm coming from the perspective of someone who sees that we can address this virus and get it to negative, we can get the cells on the cervix to go to healthy using natural approaches. And by the way, that includes the stress recovery, because we know that HPV tends to activate when we're under stress. It also activates when we're exposed to things that are stressful to our bodies. Like we know HPV is more likely to turn on when we are on a birth control pill, which are synthetic hormones. We know it's more likely when people are smoking, which has toxin exposure. So we know that toxins, chemicals 
stress are what turn on the virus. And if we can eliminate these stresses or help the body recover from stress, then the body can fend off the virus. So I'm coming from a perspective of empowerment. Like I can see that we can protect ourselves from this virus. And just having that information, I'm hoping that helps you then when you're making that decision about do I get a vaccine or not, to be able to realize, okay, if this virus does turn up for you, or if you do catch some abnormal cells on your pap smear, know that there's things we can do, protocol we can follow to help prevent that from causing cancer. So then that maybe weighs in with your decision making. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think, you know, for anyone that's listening, that's not familiar with this virus, or you've heard about the virus, but you're not sure what like kind of the traditional approach is for many, many people, if they have you know, significant enough HPV found on a pap smear, they sometimes will go on for a colposcopy, Mm -hmm. which is when the gynecologist or the midwife will be looking with a, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm not using Mm -hmm. the proper terminology, but looking with a, essentially like a microscope to, you know, they'll use acetic acid on the cervix to be looking to see if they can visualize any of these abnormal cells. And if they see something of significance, they can actually go in and biopsy it. And then from there, make a decision if someone needs surgery or if they can just watch and wait. So I love hearing that whether you get the vaccine or not, there are ways to address lifestyle, nutrition, stress management, et cetera, that can mitigate this developing into a full-blown problem. And are you in a position where you can share some of those strategies or is that proprietary? I'm just out of utter curiosity. I just Mm -hmm. find this really interesting, you know, let the body heal itself is really the message that we're sharing, you know, message of hope. And as you mentioned, empowerment, which I think will resonate with a lot of people. Well, there's, and this is the thing is you can find when you say you start searching, because this is when women contacted me, they've usually started searching on their own and saying, hey, is there something I can do? Which I think is a great question. And you'll find like even some simple things that we probably would already think of like vitamin C. We know vitamin C helps us fend off cold and flu viruses. Yes, it's going to help you fend off HPV virus too. So we can look at nutrients. We know about even say mushroom extract is one that's well established as helping the immune system to fend off viruses, including HPV virus. The key thing is that there's a lot of questions in terms of, well, what's the right dose? What's the right time frame? How am I going to implement this? And this is where, because I've worked with thousands of cases over so many years, I've been able to figure out, here's the doses mm-hmm. that are most effective for most people. And here's the systematic way we can implement that in terms of supplements, in terms of dietary changes. Like I also see that we know of food as medicine, right? And so you would kind of think, okay, we want to avoid inflammatory foods and avoid sugar. But what I've been able to see is that actually there's such a huge connection between leaky gut or intestinal permeability and the things that cause leaky gut, like again, toxins and gluten. The more these things are causing leaky gut and the more leaky gut is present, it predisposes women to HPV activating and abnormal cells developing on the cervix. So I really like to, again, encourage people to take a bigger approach to it. Like we need to help your body get as healthy as can be, get your digestion recovered, get your hormones balanced, get your nervous system and your immune system optimized. Because then what we're really doing is we're helping your body fend off this virus We're getting you from the 10% that were susceptible into the 90% that were able to clear this virus. 
Well, this is so incredibly valuable, and I'm so glad that we were able to connect today because these two big topics, you know, HPV and talking about stress and cortisol are things that I know all of my listeners can benefit from. So you mentioned that you have a new book, and I'd love for you to share a little bit about your new book, how best to connect with you, share your podcast so that my listeners can connect with you outside of this episode. Oh, thank you so much. My website is at drdonnie.com, which you Donnie is spelled D-O-N-I. So it's either D-R-D-O-N-I or spelled out drdonnie.com. And there you can find my blogs and I have a guide to HPV. So I'm happy for people to grab that. And, and it's a free guide so you can learn more about the approach and what your next steps might be. I'm also always happy to talk to people who are in that HPV decision-making and help give a little input into what are your options? Because I feel so passionate. It's There's so much confusion. I just would want women to be able to connect with someone who can say, what are my options? What is my best decision from here? And so I'm happy to offer that as a resource as well. And my prior books are The Stress Remedy and Stress Warrior. And the newest book is Master Your Stress, Reset Your Health. And that'll be out soon. So that's going to be coming, including being able to help you assess for your stress type. And really, I want to encourage you to get empowered around getting that homeostasis with your stress response and really learning your body and what it needs. And that's what that book does is to really empower you about how to be your healthiest self, get that epigenetics working for you instead of against you, and to be able to just have your best quality of life. Great. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Oh my goodness. That was great. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes.